do you have more pictures of your goats than yourself on your phone? Does your vacation time get spent attending goat shows? Can you have a conversation without bringing up dairy goats? Neither can we. So join us as we talk to the country's best breeders, judges, appraisers, and industry experts about all things dairy goats. We are John Kane and Danielle Caroli. Welcome to Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. What's up, everyone, and welcome to Ringside. I'm John, and as always, I'm joined by Danielle Caroli, who is rowing to fictional places before recording podcasts. How are you, John? Great, great. How was your workout? Good. I went to Brazil and also maybe Sweden. I'm not sure anymore. All is good. Do you get like different instructors with different accents for those areas? There is one instructor who's Scottish, but the rest (laughs) of them are American. Is he spicy Scottish where he's like, oh, come on, you old hag? Or is he like, all right, get your back into it? More the latter. Okay. Yeah. How's your week going? Besides, you know, working out and stuff, how's your week going with dairy goats and all that jazz? My dairy goat week is going as well as it can be while I'm anxiously awaiting pregnancy results. I drew the blood, sent it out, and typically I just send it out the cheapest way possible. The lab is in the lab I use is in Pennsylvania. I can send it out and it usually gets there within a day and I don't rush ship it or anything of that nature, except for the fact that I forgot that this is probably the busiest time of year for the post office. My little package is not priority number one to USPS. It's priority number one to me, but not to them. It's taken a little longer than I was anticipating it to take, but I'm hoping I'm going to be getting some results, hopefully positive results, probably early next week just by tracking it all. We will see what comes with that. There's multiple possibilities with this blood draw. I feel like this is kind of that like make or break moment. We may have that doe who got out. And with the rest of the herd that she may be bred, we'll find out with that one because she hasn't come into heat that I know of. I've also stopped taking the bucks and doing checks. I have three does who I always get very leery of in terms of getting them pregnant, especially my experimental. And I'm probably hopefully going to be happy, but also maybe kicking myself and taking notes for how to actually get her bred to a sauna next year instead of a Nubian, but... Ooh, ooh, I have an idea. Oh, and what's that? Buy a sauna book. Yeah. (laughs) Other options um, to be considered probably are going to be a little bit more practical for the herd. But, you know, what's one more buck, right? I mean... At this point, uh, yeah, I I don't think I want to consider another one of those. We will see if 
she gets bread and she takes and she holds the pregnancy and it's a full a full pregnancy with viable embryos and all of those things we will kind of take notes and see if it's just changing our hormone protocol on her because we did something differently with the second heat on her than we did on the first or if for some reason she just wants to get bred Nubian and I just have to accept that have a crazy line of experimentals and get my sonnens completely from the son in her book I don't know but we shall see on that count and then I have another one that I drew blood on her she has really silent heats. I'm going to see if she got bread or not. And if not, I'll have to make a decision. I really don't want to keep this dough dry. We're kind of starting to get towards the end of May kidding. And I just think about my quality of life, <laughs> which I don't necessarily know if we all always focus on, but I just don't know if I can really have so many does kidding out in May just with commitments, the way my barn is set up, trying to decide if these does are the does I want to try and get bred at least one more time for May kids, or if I'm going to let them go dry a year and evaluate where that puts them in my herd, if that means they can stay in my herd or kind of the gaps I need to fill or would there be gaps I would need to fill if I got rid of them? All of these big time dilemmas with in the back of my mind, knowing that I also have six really nice dry yearlings that I'm going to have to make space for on the milk stand in 2025. So 2025? Well, yes. Oh, yeah. 2024. Yeah. Oh, that's scary. And 2025 is when they're going to freshen. So trying to kind of figure out where I'm going. A lot of it is, am I representing the genetics in my herd the way I want to for purely sentimental reasons, honestly. This simple pregnancy test on five dose, six dose is probably going to be very altering to the barn dynamic if they don't come back pregnant. We will figure that out and face that hurdle when we get those results in our email. That's kind of what's going on. Maybe not so much in my herd. Well, it is going on in my herd, but also in my dairy goat breeder brain, trying to figure it all out and make it work and keep things reasonable. But we'll see what happens there. Yeah. uh, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I mean, Luckily for me, knocking on wood, today is day 21 post-breeding for our Dothea. So we're hoping that she's took. You know, I don't come out to the barn tomorrow and she's magically in heat on day 22. But so far, looking so good. And I was pretty confident with that breeding because I let the buck get her like six or seven times, you know. So she's good. But as you're sitting there talking about these May kids which I have a doe that I bred last week on the 4th, so not a fun time for anybody. And I'm kind of leaning towards if she comes into heat on Christmas Day, her present to me is going to be her being sold. 
<laughs> and I'm not even like I wish I was joking. Like no, I just I know. It, it's it's a number of strikes that she's got against her already before she's even fresh. <clears throat> so uh yeah, she might be sold potentially bred to somebody else. And you know, I'll I'll be okay with that. <laughs> Cause I don't want a, a bordering June kid. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we're on the end of the the junior kid spectrum or whatever it is, or you know, it's just no. No, thank you. Especially with the way you feed milk. Well, actually, it's not going to make any difference to you because she's going to be on a bottle or the kids are going to be on a bottle just the same as everybody else in your barn. So I don't even think it matters. For you, it's not going to change much. It's just going to be a few extra bottles to feed. I'll have to keep a dough in milk longer, though, to feed her the amount of time that I want to. You mean until January? You might as well just have a dough have a full extended lactation. We're just full of all sorts of jokes tonight. <laughs> I'm just going to keep on going with my updates, Danielle. I feel okay, really go for it. Really super excited about Thea taking and should be she should be pretty fresh for a national show. We're also kind of just getting ready for Christmas with our daughter. And that's fun. We've done all the things, made cookies and all that good stuff. But also with this like downtime of the year, I've, I've started kind of getting back into like my artsy side. I used to be really into drawing and painting, although I'm super rusty with painting, uh, but uh, drawing and just kind of having fun. And and yeah, we're I'm just enjoying enjoying life right now, you know. Oh, no, it's perfect. And I mean, it's the time of the year, holidays aside. But this is our downtime as dairy goat breeders. And this is the time to focus on different things and do the things for yourself that you haven't been doing because you've had all these obligations in the barn. And so is that meeting up with friends that you haven't seen or haven't been able to catch up with very much? Or is that trying to stick to a stronger workout routine or just taking a breather. And I mean, I know we have a dairy goat podcast and we talk about dairy goats every week in and out, but is it removing yourself and reconnecting with the world outside of dairy goats and realizing that there is so much more to the world than dairy goats. And don't get me Mm -hmm. wrong. Again, we have a podcast. We talk about dairy goats Every week, ad nauseum, you listen to us talk about them. We enjoy them. We are passionate about them. But I at least find for myself that it's only fun and the passion is only there when there's other stuff going on too. And you're not in the trenches and getting out, figuring out who you are without the label dairy goat breeder sometimes goes a long way. It certainly does. And I mean, we I don't know how many times we've said it in the last couple of weeks where it's like, man, I can't wait for people to start freshening goats again, because it's a wild time on social media when people are bored and have nothing better to do than start poking bears. Right. And me included. Uh, oh, yeah. No, <laughs> you included is right. <laughs> Thank God you have Christmas coming up. <laughs> It's just wild out there. I mean, there's much worse on social media than what I'm posting. Like, calm down, right? But 
uh, it's it's just I can't wait for kidding season, but at the same time, it's nice to be able to take like a break and relax and just kind of focus on you as a person or your family and kind of just like recenter gravity, right? Exactly. Danielle, there's a little bit of ad news this week. There is. By the time this is out, there should be the committee list out. So that should have hit. People have should have been notified if they uh, are on a committee. I don't know. There's this little map that came out and a job form that came out to sign up for this thing called linear appraisal. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Oh, can't say I have. No. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get your herd signed up for appraisal? I certainly did. I signed up for your stop, ma'am. So hopefully you're having a stop. And and I look forward to the possibility of getting my animals scored once again. Definitely value the program and I value uh, what comes from it. No, exactly. And yes, obviously, I mean, I know we talked about this off the podcast, but you are more than welcome to come to our stop if we are able to have one this year. We're going to put it in and try. And we are definitely in a fortunate area where it is very easy to first of all, have a bunch of people come to one farm and get appraised just geographically. I mean, we've talked about this with other breeders when we say we travel three hours to a show and that's pushing it versus the people who say, oh, the three hour show is in my backyard. Geographically, we're in just such a more condensed area. It makes it easier. But then we also work together to bring a bunch of herds to get appraised so that this way, cuts down on appraisal travel time and or appraiser travel time. And so hopefully we'll see. I mean, keeping in mind, I know we got appraised this year. Oh yeah. If if we get appraised, I definitely won't be throwing a hissy fit and making a post online about how sad I am and how crappy it is that other people got scored, but I didn't. Right. And I mean, and that's the thing we got appraised this year. We didn't get appraised last year. It always changes I'm very aware that the demands of the program, and I'm so happy about this far, not that this is like, I just, I don't know how to word this right, but I'm so happy because I value this program that there is such a demand for the program. And so just kind of seeing that and knowing that people use this data because the data helps us all. But anyway, um, off that little tangent, I do want to quickly point out that there is an email that is coming out or was sent out. I don't think I got it yet, but I saw it on Facebook making the rounds that you are going to be receiving an email with your PIN number. And that is because they are making progress in the ability to do online voting. If you are a registered ABGA member and have that, you should be receiving an email or you should have received an email by the time this podcast airs with your PIN number to just kind of refresh it because I believe you will need the PIN number to vote. But Mm -hmm. to be determined more on that as that unfolds. 
I think that's it for Adka news. I mean, it's obviously a slow time of year. I did see that our president and vice president made a trip down to the good old office, and hopefully they got a lot of work done or are getting work done, and everything continues to improve. Exactly. Danielle, we have a super exciting interview this week. Oh, we certainly do. I think we should just like jump right into it. I think we should. A few weeks ago, I was mentioning a series of TikTok videos I watched by a company that converts shipping containers into milk parlors, cheese rooms, milk and butter plants, and even bars. As soon as that episode dropped, we got message after message of people asking where to find the videos. We quickly decided we needed to feature this company that is behind these videos. That company is Don's Dairy Supply out of South Courtright, New York. We're joined today by Brooke White, who is the daughter of founder Don Coger. She works for DDS and makes all the videos you see online. I can't wait to hear all about the container part of the business and how it got started and everything about the process of creating these awesome containers. Uh, so let's welcome to the show, Brooke White. Thank you. Brooke, we're obviously going to get to what everybody wants to hear. But first, can we hear a little bit about uh, the history of Don's? When did it get started? What were the primary functions of the company up to when the container part of the business started? Uh, sure. So you've already mentioned my dad is Don. Over 40 years ago now, he he started Don's Dairy Supply as, as a route delivery. We're in Delaware County, New York, which is a pretty heavy farm territory. And, and so we're lucky enough to be surrounded by many, many amazing farms, like of all sizes, honestly. And um, so it started as a route business. And then he actually purchased a Pat's dealership. Um, and so then it kind of moved into manure handling. And then he added a service business in. Um, and so we, we do like milking equipment installation and, you know, parlor and pipeline design, things like that. And so that's kind of where we were when we started doing the containers back in 20, I think the first container we did was in 2014. Um, and we still do all of that in, in conjunction with the containers. So uh, sometimes the guys will be in the shop working on containers and we'll have to drop everything and go on service calls. And so was the nature of our business now. So how did that idea of the container dairy start and kind of walk us through the process of what got you to building that first container? Sure. So it essentially, it started out of a need. Uh, we had a customer, uh, it was a rabbi out of Brooklyn, actually, but he had bought a herd of goats from Wisconsin. And he was on at the time renting a horse farm and he had contacted us, wanted us to uh, essentially build a parlor in, in this barn where he was renting. And the landlord got wind of it and said, no way are you having letting goats be here. So he bought land and my dad actually brought him down uh, four bucket milkers. And so when he got his herd of goats, he milked, I don't know, it was like a hundred goats <laughs> with four bucket milkers when they were Ooh, all like oh first kidding gosh. in. 
And um, my dad had always and still kind of does have this big dream to uh, have a like kind of tractor trailer relief milking sort of unit where like if a farm was on fire or flooding or something like that, you could bring this like tractor trailer to the farm and actually milk the cows in it rather than have to like transport the cows to a different um, farm. So we haven't quite gotten there yet. We've looked a lot into tractor trailers, but you know, a lot of them are lightweight and aluminum. And so we just really haven't, we haven't bit the bullet on that piece. And so we kind of said, well, what if we do something uh, mobile-ish? And so the first unit we ever built was a 16 stall goat parlor milk house. We put it all on a mobile home trailer and we then like bought this Amish barn shed and set that in front of it and kind of put like all of our utilities in it, like the vacuum pump. And I think the compressors and maybe the hot water heater. Um, this was kind of back before, like there was so many readily available on demand units and uh, we drove it down there and the customer called us like three days later and was like, okay, I just bought another shipping container and it's going to be delivered to you. And I need you to put a creamery in it for us. So we were like, okay, you got it. Um, so that was the first project that we did. And it was kind of a wild idea at the time. And we were all just like, okay, we got to do something quickly. That's going to make it work. We, you know, contacted, contacted our local like state milk inspector who is in our area oh. And she was like, brought us a copy of the PMO and she was like, Hey, meet the PMO and you're good to go. And so they just put this like fabric coverall up like at the time. And we just backed the two container units right into this fabric coverall and, and it worked, uh, you know, brilliantly. And then we sort of put the project online and we had someone else call us and, and this guy, um, was like, Hey, I saw this, here's what I'm thinking. And so the next project we did was like a little 20 footer that was just like a milk house and like little cheese making room. And so from there, it sort of like snowballed. And now we mostly do, you know, goat milking, like pipelines, parlors. Um, and of course, the creamery side has really kind of taken off and we do a lot of creameries. We have so many questions. <laughs> okay. Okay. Like, what does the process look like on your end? Like, where do you find the containers and, and how are the customers actually reaching out to you? And, and like, this, how are they coming up with specs? And there's just so many. Like, I know each project's different, but like, what is, what is it looking like for these customers when they're reaching out? Yeah. So it's different for everyone. The reasons that a container might fit for someone, you know, is going to be different for the next person. You know, really, a lot of people will just reach out to me and email me and just be like, hey, talk to me about this, <laughs> you know. And so, honestly, the way it all starts is just having a conversation with a customer about what do they want you know, what are their goals? What do they want to start? Where do they want to go in, you know, a couple of years? Like, you know, are they just thinking about processing a portion of their milk or, you know, right now maybe people are you know, 
goat milking with bucket milkers and they want to expand to a pipeline and, and get a larger herd. And so there's so many different avenues where people are led to this as a solution for them. And so, you know, it's just about kind of starting that conversation and seeing like if it's feasible, <laughs> you know, I guess. And if it, you know, if it's a good option for somebody, because, you know, to be honest with you, containers, you know, they're, they're for small scale people. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to put a thousand gallon pasteurizer in a container. And so, right. um, you know, it, it is a very niche person and, and um, farm that I would say um, they work well for. It's really just about starting that conversation and, and seeing what their needs are. And do you guys have like 10 containers on hand at all times? Or are you guys going out and purchasing them from the container store? Uh, yeah, like I got a guy. Yeah, <laughs> I have a guy. Um, I have a great guy. If anyone wants to buy containers, I totally recommend Jake Containers in New Jersey. He's very like he's kind of a container broker, right? And so he knows what I'm looking for because I have. He always says I look for unicorn containers because there's not a lot out there of what I want. You know, I want something that's really good quality with like straight wall straight ceiling you know containers like you can't just go to a big container port and say oh i want that one that's like number 15th down they're like no you're getting the one on the top so <laughs> so i have like a guy who who sort of shops them for me um and he'll like call me up randomly and be like hey i found this one and i'll be like okay send it up you know but yeah it's worked out great and the containers they're <laughs> super strong little metal boxes. Essentially, it's a very similar to building a metal building. And they're rated for, you know, hurricane zone and wind and they've worked out really well so far. That's awesome. So kind of that start to finish, how long do your builds typically take? It does vary. I would say it's it's a tough thing because there's so many puzzle pieces that come into play there. If someone contacted me and they were like ready to go, I would say probably best case scenario is they were getting a container in maybe like eight to 10 months. Um, but a lot of that varies on equipment lead time. You know, to get just a pasteurizer right now, you're probably looking about six month lead time. So, uh, we try to line everything up with, you know, okay, when is the equipment going to be done? You know, that said, we also do sell a lot of shell containers where essentially we just sort of do the electric and the lighting and maybe the plumbing and, and then the customer puts their own equipment in, maybe they already have it and they're, you know, expanding their space or However, it works. You know, some people purchase used equipment and they send it to us and we install it. So in those instances, I would say it could be sooner, but it's also varies by the size of the container you would get. Like a 20-footer, I can sort of squeeze in my building, whereas like a 40 or 45, I only have certain spaces in my building. So those just, we have to wait until they're done, basically. That makes a lot of sense. And so everything is built on your site and then transported to the farm or dairy where it's going to be used? 
Yep. I'm sure everyone is listening and, and acting just like me, dreaming about having their own uh, container parlor or milk room or whatever. Uh, obviously, cost varies a lot because there's different types of equipment going in these things. But what would like the bare bones that you're talking about, uh, container, what would that roughly run someone in today's market? Well, I would say on average, the average project cost is around $100,000 with all the equipment usually for uh, people. And that does vary. Like I have some that are like 75000 I have some that are 130 But that's, I would say, kind of an average cost for, mm -hmm. you know, and it, equipment, of course, comes into play there largely. That, I would say, is kind of a good average. And so what do your customers look like, um, particularly in terms of dairy goat operations, especially like size, but then also um, what they're doing with the milk? Sure. Um, a lot of our, I would say, goat parlor customers are maybe expanding uh, and milking, you know, well, really anywhere from, you know, 12 to 100 goats. But that said, you know, we've done a couple where they, they do goat milking in the container where they have like the little stand and they just, they, they bucket milk them. So it's, hmm. it's really just, it's often people who maybe have a barn now where they milk in and they just don't have a milk house room and don't have a room for a creamery. So you know, it's essentially a lot of with goat people. And two, you know, I, I do find that goats are so much more flexible than cows in terms of like a lot of those people don't have like a manure lagoon and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. It, it might be somebody on rented land or maybe, you know, a lot of the goat people may, may say, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to, you know, stay in this farm forever. So now I can take my container with me if I move to a bigger farmer or something like that. So I feel like goats are just so much more versatile than cows in that um, easier to move, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and so, you know, that it, it could be that that's one of the reason I just feel like, you know, the containers are just so much more, they're just they're suited for goats so well, because, you know, they're smaller, it's often a smaller operation uh, than, you know, unless you're say milking, you know, a thousand goats. Um, so a definitely small scale goat operations, I would say for sure. But um, honestly, across the board for different um, customers, I, ha I have a couple, I have one in um, Johns Island, South Carolina, which is outside of Charleston, and it's called the Goatery. And they milk, I think it's around 30 goats or so. And they do, they sell the raw milk and they're just getting kind of up and going and they're going to make cheese. But they also do like a lot of agritourism and they have like goat yoga there. And so it's really kind of a, that's what it's geared towards. Like just the, the actual farm and like kind of going there. I mean, their products are great, but it's a definitely a value added. Whereas like on the other hand, I have um, customers in Indiana called Sirocco Ridge Farm and they're cheese makers to a T. <laughs> like they they make cheese, they make very good cheese. It's, it's like, it's an artisan, you know? And so it's kind of like whatever, whatever suits your fancy in terms of like that. I would say cheese is definitely a big part of 
the products that are being made from the goat milk as, as a whole, but you know, it really kind of depends on the person and the farm. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure it's just every, every build has got to be so unique and, and that's really cool. I, I love that. And um, speaking of uniqueness, how are you dealing with like the different state by state regulations? Are your customers having to bring that to you or do you by now have pretty much the main area, main state areas that you're offering these goods to uh, down? Yeah, um, it can be tricky, but I would say as a whole, um, if you can get something approved in New York, you can get it approved anywhere. <laughs> New York is usually kind of at the top of the list of tougher states for sure. Um, they all have different sort of quirks. Um, but kind of in addition to that, what I found is that, you know, the PMO is just, it's not black and white. Uh, so it's often up to inspector interpretation. And so, you know, we open up a dialogue with their milk inspector and, you know, essentially what we do is we put together, you know, specs of the container and the equipment and, you know, say to the milk inspector, okay, how does this layout look? Does this equipment look okay? You know, and then we just sort of go from there in terms of their feedback and, you know, creating something from that, you know, an inspector, it's a tricky thing because you have to have a good relationship with them, right? Because they're going to be inspecting you day in, day out. You, you have to kind of develop that relationship. And, you know, when you think of it as their job is just to make sure you know what you're doing and you're making a safe food and you're understanding the regulations yourself. And so, you know, I think an inspector can tell right away if a person has actually done their homework or not. And so the people that have and have put the time in, it's it's a breeze, honestly. And and I find that nine times out of 10, the inspectors are just more than helpful and like really, really often get excited for our customers and are like really invested in, in these small scale projects. And and it's great. And, you know, every every state does have a little bit different regulations. Like, for example, in Wisconsin, you have to bottle and pasteurize in different rooms. And um, but, you know, we just that stuff is really easy to change. And being that they're all custom built, it's not like we can't change anything that an inspector asked for. So it's it's relatively simple. So what would you say is the most common issue you face when creating these builds or the most common issue that your customers have when working with you to create the perfect container for their dairy or creamery setup? I guess maybe there's not a common issue, maybe financing, I guess I would say. <laughs> mm. um, you know, not to say that there's not a lot of financing out there, but um I feel like what may hold people back on certain things is just like waiting for grant money to come in or, or I will have customers that, you know, for years will put in for grants for a project like this and then finally get it maybe two or three years later. And so it's kind of just about 
like I said before, it is so many pieces of the puzzle working together. And so it's really just kind of about the stars aligning and having everything fall into place. You know, I have people that will work with and then they'll have something happen and they'll just be like, okay, I want to hold off for a couple months or, you know, whatever it is. And so it, it can vary for sure. But I would say that financing is a big piece of that puzzle. I can imagine, especially in today's economy. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Don's still servicing dairies. You guys have trucks on the road. You've got your uh, company, you know, still offering products to people that may have broken components in their dairy and they need something now, you know, especially in the New York area. But what's like the day to day at Don's Dairy look for you and, you know, just as a company as a whole? Sure. So (laughs) a lot of time on the phone (laughs) for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, we'll have at any given time, we have usually three to four containers in production. So it will be sort of about going over details with our team, possibly, you know, reaching out to customers and, you know, getting opinions or questions answered because, you know, as much as we plan, sometimes they will be like, well, you know what, it would make more sense to put it over here or, you know, something like that. Because once you finally build it, you kind of, it comes to life, you know, in your, in your eyes. And so I'm a lot of like communicating in terms of that. We have two service teams that go from farm to farm and do like installations. Lately, we've been installing a lot of bulk tanks. I don't know if you guys have really maybe not seen it in the goat world, but in in kind of like the, the dairy farm where you're shipping milk to cooperatives, they've been, the cooperatives have been (laughs) struggling finding truck drivers. And so a lot of people are going to maybe every other day pickup or even every three day pickup. So farmers are having to put in larger bulk tanks. So we've been doing a lot of that lately and just, it can vary day to day. Like I said, with, with what projects we're working on, you know, the time of year, if it's a time of year when the temperatures are changing, you know, everyone's compressors break. So it's just, um, yeah, you, you have to be flexible and, and we're, we're a small business, right? It's myself, my dad, my mom, and my brother, Kyle, who he is our sanitary welder and he's uh, builds a lot. He he's pretty handy. You know, we have quite a few techs and stuff up, but there's really only, I think maybe now there's about 13 of us. And so we all have to, you know, wear different hats and do different things in the business just because there's only so many of us. We we get to do a lot of fun stuff, though. Like I love going to farms. I love going on deliveries. If we have like a container delivered, you know, within three, four hours, whatnot, we'll often go with it and just help set it and everything. We also do a lot of advocating for dairy. So we we'll always like host politicians and 4-Hers and FFA kids and stuff like that, which is a lot of fun too. So we, uh, we get to do a lot of different stuff. That's awesome. And I kind of want to ask because I first saw this idea of the container, not necessarily in a container dairy, but in a container build when I was in Cuba and they converted a, it was a factory, 
but part of it was now an art museum, but they create, they used a bunch of containers to create a restaurant. And so that was kind of the first time I saw what you could do with a container. But then obviously container builds and small homes using containers or workspaces have become a very much growing market. And so how has that kind of changed for your business or the demand for containers or the ease of getting containers and all of those things? Well, I think in a way it's made it more feasible for people because like now I I think maybe we have five or six in the state of Vermont. Okay. So the first one, a lot of people were like, okay, how do we, how do we handle this? You know, they weren't really kind of sure what it was. And so I think with like so many more people using containers in like restaurants and small homes and things like that, it's just sort of opened up that window, you know, in terms of comfort, I think for people, you know, saying, okay, this is maybe a viable option for me, Mm -hmm. but it also maybe has made it a little bit harder to get to containers like on my end. But um, it's so cool just to see all the things that they, they make with containers. We actually had one in last winter that we just sort of studded out and cut for a guy, but he finished it out and it's like a little three season container cabin. So, you know, it's, it's really just kind of innovative (laughs) and like, you know, when people are really getting to piece them together now, that's kind of the fun part too, you know, for us is like, okay, how can we make two containers work together? So you know, I just, yeah. I feel like it, it gets your creative juices flowing because you are limited, right? You're limited on inches. That's what I always say to people. Okay, we got to go back and crunch inches. It makes you think outside of the box for sure. Well, I got to ask, what's your favorite build so far that you guys have done? That's a tough question for me to answer. There's a lot of really cool ones. <laughs> yeah. So we, I, I think we counted the other day and it was 50. Um, or maybe 52, actually. You know, it's it's hard to say what's my favorite build, per se. I, I guess I guess if I was going to say goat parlor, I would say the goatery, because that is two containers, and it is a goat parlor, milk house, utility room in one, and then, then in the other is a cheese-making room. But in their cheese making container, they have like a really nice, we call it a clean entry room, but for them, they do a lot of agritourism. So we put, you know, they have a window in the door and then they have another window so people can like look in and see cheese being made and all the magic that comes with that. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I, I also like I'm, I'm, it's hard to say like, what's my favorite build because it's also like what people have done with them, you know? And so some people, some people get it and they'll, they process milk, you know, three times a day and they sell out three times a week or not, I'm sorry, not three times a day, three times a week is what they'll process. And they'll sell, sell out of their milk and they're like, nope, this is all I want to do. I don't want to expand. I don't want to do any more. Um, we have one farm in Vermont called Miller Farm and it's a it's a cow dairy. They they ship to Stonyfield. 
as well. They, they milk like 200 cows. And so they got a container right when COVID hit because they were, I don't remember if they were given a quota or not, but they were just like, this is the way we need to go. And they started with a 100 gallon pasteurizer. Then they added a second 100 gallon pasteurizer in. And now we're building them a second container that's going to have two 150s and the two 100s that they have because they're going to go like larger scale. And they got contracts with their local schools and they're selling milk at their local schools to their local schools in like the old school milk dispensers that you can like go up and dispense your own milk in, oh, I think, which, cool. which I think is so cool. And so they also do like they, I think they, their milk goes to university of Vermont and a couple of other places. And so it's really just awesome to see how just in a few short years, they've become like a staple of milk in, in Vermont and, and I just love what they've, you know, they just, they're just, they're great people too, which again, like, if you ask me like what my, what's my favorite part of the job, it's just, it's just getting to know, getting to know all these like amazing people that have this vision and like see it come to life and really put the time in. And like some of these people, you're like, when do you sleep? You know, I get it, <laughs> but it's just, it's so cool to see what, what people are doing. And so for a lot of these people, you know, they've been really wanting to do this for several years and then just seeing the dream come true for them is, is just so awesome. It's such a great, it's a privilege to be a part of, honestly. Well, you're working with these people for so long, you know, months and months exactly. and months and months that like yes. you build a relationship, you know? For sure. Yeah. I know Danielle likes to uh, dabble with her wine, and I drink from occasion to occasion. <laughs> we noticed that you guys also make bars. Can we, can we, we hear about that? <laughs> yeah, we do. My my dad is the type of guy whose wheels are always turning, and he has had kind of wanted to do a bar and you know since we started with the containers people had said oh you got to make a bar you got to make a bar and and so my uncle went on vacation and he went to a container bar and when he came back he had pictures and he showed my dad it and that was it that's all it took <laughs> so my dad was like all right we got to build one <laughs> so we we built our first container bar from a 20-foot container and we uh, rented it out for like weddings and local events and stuff like that. And then we built a second bar and we ended up selling the first bar. And the first bar is in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina now. And the second bar we still have and we rent out. Then we built a trailer bar for a customer who wanted to um, do like her own sort of event catering. And she rents it out for weddings and stuff. And that is up in like Saratoga area. And she's called the Blonde Bootlegger. And that's a 20, I think it's a 20 or a 24 foot trailer. And so now we actually have a second trailer in production right now. And we're sort of in the arguing stages, I would call it, of what are we going to do with this? <laughs> because 
essentially it's just, you know, like my, my brother and my dad will build them and, and we get some help from the guys. And a lot of it is, is um, planning out like the theme and where everything's going to go. And so it's so funny, like everyone has to come in the bar and decide all of this stuff. You know? So it's, it's been a lot of fun and, and we, we all love to have a good time too. And so it's, it's great to have it. And it's really unique. I, kind of, I found it's not like, you know, it's not like kind of one of the horse trailer bars where, you know, you walk up to it and get served a drink. So it's actually flops open and has a bar that you can sit at, which is really cool. And it's definitely the highlight of the events that they're at. It, it's worked out great, but it's just sort of a side project that my dad does. And like I said, his wheels are always turning and it's like we're, we're just waiting for the ball to drop and find out what the next project is that we, <laughs> my dad comes up with. But he's he's always got something in there. So but yeah, it, it's been great. And to be honest with you, my brothers, he can build anything. And we have a great team at Don Sterry. And, you know, we have people that are really uh, meticulous and good at their job. And so we're so fortunate that we have these people that we can pull for resources as needed. That is awesome and amazing. And I do like this. I, I think we always, as people, it's always better when we're constantly striving to figure out, okay, maybe not what's next, but how can we improve? How can we be creative and do more and do better. And I guess my question is, what is next? What are you guys seeing or expecting you to do as the continual innovations in that, in the dairy industry? Like what, what are you thinking we're going to be doing or going towards as an industry? Yeah. So my personal beliefs are that the industry is pushing to maybe almost take out the middle guys. So the, mm -hmm. the the larger people are, the middle guys are going to either have to go small or get large. It's, it's a, I'm sure you guys know, it's a tough industry to be in because there's so many things that affect dairy that a lot of people have no control over, you know? And so the way I see the industry going is the, the big guys are going to get big and then the small guys are going to be the niche market type thing. That's not to say that the small guys aren't profitable or successful. We have so many small farms that do a fantastic job. And one of the reasons that we advocate for dairy so much is because, you know, we want politicians who or whoever's making the rules out there right to understand that we have to have diversity in the food system we have to have the small guys the medium guys and the big guys you know there's room for everybody and and we just you know to me like i am so passionate about really advocating for small farms all, all different types of small farms because you know, we know that they're the backbone to our communities and we just we we know that we can't ultimately get our food from one or two suppliers like nobody wants that to happen. <laughs> so, yeah, right. so um, you know, in my mind, you know, food diversity and food stability is is just such a huge issue. And 
And I mean, I have a daughter, I have plenty of nieces and nephews, and it's like, come on, what are we going to leave for our kids? You know, we don't want them to think, oh, yeah, all your food just comes from the grocery store. You know, it's so important to get, you know, this ag education. And we're always like, you know, talking to kids about dairy and bringing ice cream in and things like that. But, um, you know, and we're very fortunate where we live uh, is we have food stability. I mean, I can drive 15 minutes and get pretty much any of any food I need. And so, uh, but there's a lot of places in the country that's, that are not like that. And so, you know, for me, I, I mean, I just, I keep my fight up for the small guys because, you know, if, if ever, <laughs> I, I mean, if, if it, if nothing, you just say, Hey, politicians, please, you know, give small farmers grant money, you know, because, right. um, you know, it's, it's what is needed to survive for a lot of people. And, and it's a, it's a thankless job, you know, and, and I'm sure you guys know, and, and, but it's, it's definitely, it's a changing industry. And I just feel like you have to be ready to adapt at any point and be ready to, to innovate essentially. And so that's kind of where myself and I think my brother are, I mean, we're younger, we're in this industry and it's something that I know in 20 years is going to look very differently. So I better be ready to change so I can keep up with it, you know, essentially, because that's the world we live in. Absolutely. And I think you guys are doing a wonderful job with your on-farm supplies that you're still continuing to this day, you know, the sales and installations on-farm, but also these custom projects that you guys are doing. Uh, it's really cool to see if people wanted to find out more about Don's Dairy Supply, where can they go and find you guys on the internet? Sure. Don'sDairySupply.com. And you can always email me, which is Brooke with an E at Don'sDairySupply.com. Or give us a call. <laughs> I talk on the phone all day. Yeah, and you're super responsive. I messaged you, and about a minute later, you were like, yeah, let's do this. And I was like, whoa, this is awesome. <laughs> I wish everybody was this quick to respond. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Brooke White of Don's Dairy Supply, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Danielle, if people wanted to find us, maybe leave a review for the podcast, where can they do that? Well, you can find us at dairygoatpodcast.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook by searching Ringside and American Dairy Goat Podcast. We are on TikTok and Instagram. If you look up Ringside Podcast, we'll be there. So be sure to like us, follow us on those platforms, as well as on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to give us a rating and a review. Be sure to subscribe. It really helps a lot. And everybody, thank you so much for joining us again. This has been Ringside, American Dairy Goat Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Danielle. And guys, you want to be on Santa's nice list, not the naughty list. Have a good day. Ringside, an American Dairy Goat Podcast, is not an affiliate of the American Dairy Goat Association. All opinions or information regarding the ADGA does not represent the registry.